Welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 6, Episode 2, The Abduction of Herbert Shermer. It was a cold night on December 3rd, 1967, and it was especially cold at 2.20 a.m. in Ashland, Nebraska. Herbert Shermer was a young 22-year-old patrolman making the usual rounds. The streets were pretty much empty. The local businesses were all closed. Everyone was tucked in beds, covered in blankets. He passed by the only open business this late at night, a gas station on Highway 6. There were, as usual, no customers. He then noticed something odd in the distance. It looked like red lights flashing upon a large truck. Was it an ambulance? A tow truck? What had happened? He drove down Highway 63 until he came upon the scene with his headlights now flicked on to high beam. It was definitely not a truck. The red lights he had seen flashing were coming from oval-shaped portholes cut into what appeared to be a metallic, oval-shaped object that was hovering about eight feet above the road surface. Patrolman Shermer noted that the object appeared to be made of aluminum, had a small walkway around it, and below, some sort of landing gear. Getting ready to call in the incident, the object rose up with flames shooting out of the bottom end, and then it suddenly swooshed right over his patrol car. He looked out his window and in his mirrors, but noted that the object was so fast, he did not know where it went. Deciding not to call it in, but because of what he saw, he returned to the police station. He drove back and within minutes arrived at the station to make his report. He glanced at the station clock to note the time. It was 3 a.m., and he was baffled that it took him what he believed to be mere minutes to arrive back at the station. Yet, all the clocks indicated time had passed. In his report, he indicated he saw what he believed to be a flying saucer. After his brief report was written up, he noted that there was a red welt on his neck. He developed a severe headache and was feeling very ill. He decided that he would not return back to duty until the next day. Months passed, and word got to the U.S. Air Force that a patrolman had seen a flying saucer and that this eyewitness testimony was valid. The Condon Commission at the University of Colorado who was tasked at the time to investigate and mostly discredit UFO reports, asked him to come to Boulder, Colorado, to retell his UFO encounter. On February 13, 1968, after being interrogated by several officials, the patrolman was asked to undergo hypnosis under the guidance of Wyoming University psychologist Leo Sprinkle. Under hypnosis, Shermer recalled that after he stopped his car near the object, the engine died and his radio went silent. A white object emerged from the craft and seemed to communicate mentally with him, preventing him from drawing his gun as he attempted to do so. Here is an audio commentary about the actual hypnosis session. Where are my lights? What is that thing? Describe it to me. 
It's made of metal and shaped like a football, silverish glow around it, flashing light underneath. It came in over a field, hung there for a moment, it's flickering on and off and making a whooshing sound, but the lights are flickering very rapidly. How fast are they flickering? Jiminy Christmas, they must be going around twice a second, at least 120 times a minute. It can't be. What's happening? Legs shooting out underneath it. It's hard to see. It's very bright. Their legs coming out, settling on the ground. Are you afraid? You're damn right. My hand is shaking. Why don't you start your cruiser and leave? I am being prevented. What do you mean, being prevented? Something in my mind. I want to go home. Oh, no. Lord, no. What? What's wrong now? They're getting out. They're coming toward the car. It can't be. Trying to draw my revolver. I'm being prevented. Something in my mind. The one in front of the car is holding up an object. Stuff shoots out of it. Goes all over the car. What is the stuff? What color is it? It's funny stuff, like greenish gas. My God, it can't be. Stuff all around the cruiser. Hmm, what's he doing? What do you mean? Who? The one in front of the car, he's pulling something out of a holster. My God, he's pointing it at me. It's bright, very bright. How bright? Bright flash, like a camera bulb, only brighter. Now what's happening? Paralyzed, passing out, can't remember anything. It's all black. And when Sherber comes around again, uh, he's looking into the eyes of, of a man who's standing right by the door of the car, man from the spaceship. And the first question the man asks him is, are you the watchman over this place? Are you the watchman over this place? Now, this is a simple kid who didn't finish high school till he was had been a policeman for several years. Uh, no education, army brat, moved around 10 countries. Kids like that, even if they watch television, don't invent sentences that say, are you the watchman over this place? So there's where it begins. Sherman was taken aboard this craft. Uh, and given a briefing, uh, told some of what they were doing, talked about bases in the country. We, in Beyond Earth, we just laid out the the interview between Shermer and, and the crew. Uh, at points, he, he says they, they've been observing us for a long period of time, and they think that if they slowly, slowly put out reports and have their contacts to state the truth, it will help them. They have no pattern for contacting people, it is by pure chance, so the government cannot determine any patterns about them. There will be a lot more contacts. To a certain extent, they want to puzzle people. They know they are being seen too frequently, and they are trying to confuse the public mind. He is telling me they want everyone to believe some in them. Some in them. And then he adds, so we will be open to their invasion. And now at this point, the hypnotist interjected, so think carefully now. Did he use the word invasion? Schirmer said yes. Then this would mean they are operating to conquer the world, and Schirmer said emphatically, oh, no, no. He used the word invasion, but meant it in a friendly way. He said it would be a showing of themselves completely. The public should consider in their minds that they should have no fear of these big beings because they are not hostile. Pretty powerful stuff. Not satisfied with reading transcripts of hypnotic regression tests, Ralph Bloom has ordered a second series of tests at UCLA. At the symposium in Tampa, Bloom said he retained the services of Dr. Ronald Katz, head of the anesthesiology department. He wanted Dr. Katz to perform the tests as he watched. Some of the tests he did were fascinating. He, he regressed her through various ages, down to 11, then down to 5, then up to 17. And had him, he asked him the same question each time he said, as he brought him sort of out. He told her, you'll remember all this when it's over, and you can open your eyes during the trance. Now, I don't know how much you know about trances. I didn't know much but someone can operate in a trance state with their eyes open, but they're in, act, in, in direct 
contact with the past. It's as though you cranked up the old computer and it's feeding you whatever the brain knows, and the brain I hear knows all, and will tell all. And so Herb went back and at 11, the question was always the same, the hypnotist said, hi, who are you? Is there anything special about today? Well, each day he took was special because it was always Herb's birthday. The only two things that the guy knew, the hypnotist, going into this hypnosis, were the fact that Herb had had a contact on a certain date and the, his birthday. He hadn't read our book, he hadn't read any of the literature, and he wasn't involved. So it was a pretty clinically clean experiment. And each time Herb was asked to write his name, and, and at 11 he says, can you write your name? And Herb says, no. He says, I can only print. It was moments like that that were very impressive, and then watching Herb Schirmer, 29, laboriously printing his name as he would at 11. Very interesting. It's another lecture in itself or another discussion. But the hypnoses were both very impressive to us who were there, and uh, watching Herb come up to the moment, live through it again, and experience what followed that was not available to his conscious mind was very dramatic. Herb was hypnotized twice before, once courtesy of the Air Force, and once by a private hypnotist, a doctor called Loring Williams from New Hampshire. And each time the hypnotist told him that he would remember when he came out of the trance, he would freely remember everything that happened. And he didn't. And he didn't remember again when Katz told him he would. Now part of it's come back, and the reason I bring that up is sort of a side issue. Herb remembers a good deal, most probably, of what happened. Some from the hypnotic sessions when he's relived the experience, and then after when that was reinforced by his hearing the tape. So he heard himself saying. But really he had to hear it from the tape to remember it. He learned it from the tape. I suppose remember is the wrong word. He learned about his experience from the tape. Some leaked through from the experience of itself. So he has a and we've been watching very carefully, and I'm really mean. I mean, if Herb says something that he didn't say before, I say, you didn't say that before. And what it turns out is that we all are, unless we're really special kind of automatons, we tell a story as, as we are, and it's really not always the same way, and sometimes you respond to pressure from the audience. You're here, I mean, the two people who are with you can exert a pressure on you. Um, it's a hard thing to tell a complicated story that you only know from having learned it secondhand, and yet it's your story. After the session had ended, Shermer was able to recall even more detail about the encounter. The beings were friendly, he told investigators. They drew energy from electrical power lines, and they had a base on Venus. The Condon Committee concluded that there was a lack of evidence, and after all interviews were conducted, they had no confidence that the patrolman's report was physically real. They concluded that perhaps he had pulled over in the early morning and fell asleep and dreamed everything up, or perhaps he was just looking at the planet Venus and was highly imaginative. It was the typical public conclusions, all of which were designed to discredit any UFO sightings as either naturally occurring or outright frauds. Psychologist Dr. Sprinkle, however, felt that Shermer believed in the reality of the events he described. Ironically, 
the doctor was dismissed from the Condon Commission. Shermer returned home to Ashland and was appointed police chief, but after two months he resigned, stating that he could not continue on due to his UFO encounter. Many townsfolk ridiculed him. His car was even dynamited, and his wife left him. Shermer had undergone other hypnosis to see what else he could remember. One fact that came out that I find particularly interesting is that the aliens he claimed to have seen wore uniforms with an emblem of a winged serpent on the left breast. This is very similar to winged serpents that have appeared in mythology all around the world. Shermer looked for no notoriety nor publicity, but had maintained that what he saw was real. Let us listen to Shermer describe the entire encounter in his own words. I guess I should tell you a little bit about myself before I get into the experience that I had. I was born in Missouri, and I was brought up uh, as a service brat. Uh, my father was a career man in the Air Force. I uh, went to school in Japan, Germany, France, and Hawaii. I jumped around quite a bit, so I didn't get much of an education when I was young. But I did finish it all later. When I was 17 years old, I went into the military service, United States Navy, and my first duty station was in Jacksonville, Florida. And then from there, I went over to the Far West Command, and I helped serve our flag and fight for it in Vietnam, even though I felt it was an immoral act of a war. Then, coming out of the service, I went back to Missouri and spent a couple of months there. And I went home to Nebraska, where my folks were. And I wasn't making very much money being out of the service, you know. Two dollars an hour being a clerk wasn't my bag, really. So I wanted uh, newer fields, so I always wanted to be in law enforcement so I talked to my father about going into law enforcement and uh, he decided that uh, the uh, state patrol in Nebraska would be a good idea so we fill out the forms and everything and I had to go to the Ashton, Nebraska to the police department to get a police check so I walked in and five minutes later I was a policeman they hired me there uh, my my life before this happened as a, as a police officer the, the short time I was was a good one I enjoyed it I enjoyed working with the public and serving the community and serving the laws of the state uh, now I guess I'll get on with the story uh, it was long 2.30 Actually, I think was the time that this happened, but right around 2.20, uh, I was just checking two gas stations. I left the two gas stations, uh, excuse me, I, I left the last gas station that I checked to pull onto the highway, 
and I was making radio contact with the Wahoo Sheriff's Office because we didn't have radio communications available in the city at nighttime because uh, we couldn't afford it. So I told them that everything was all secure. I pulled onto the highway and putting the mic down, I seen some flashing lights in front of me. First appeared to me to be a truck, I thought, as I got closer and put the high beams of the lights on the patrol car on this, this object started raising, these lights started raising up in the air to about 40 feet. I, I, I think I was something like 50 yards from this. These lights were flashing and they got, as they got bigger, as I got close to it, it seemed like they were red flashing lights coming out of a porthole, which sort of circled the, the uh, craft. It had uh, like a catwalk going around the center of it. It was shaped like a football, very metallic, like a very shiny bumper, if you polished a bumper on a car. It had sort of a reddish, orangish glow coming under, from beneath it. And then there was this white flash that came on to me in the patrol car. It felt as if we were being pulled. And then it was being pulled. You know, we were being pulled up the side of this bank to the left of the road and up toward this field, the car and I. I, I felt nothing. I, I, uh, at first I felt kind of stunned and shocked, and then I felt sort of tingly. And as the car and I moved up the bank to the top of this field, this object landed and some legs came out and it sat down. I was just sitting there really motionless. I couldn't move. I may have even had my mouth open. I don't remember, you know, being probably scared. This hatch came open. And this light came out of the hatch and this form came down and looked the form of a human being. And this form started walking toward the patrol car with an object in both its hands, appeared to be hands. And he was walking straight toward the patrol car. As he was doing this, another form came out and started walking toward the patrol car also. As this being got in front of the, walked up to the front of the patrol car with this object in his hand, which looked sort of a squarish oval type. It looked like it had a lens in front of it. And the only thing I could think was, oh my God, what's going to happen now? And this green light came out all over the car and then sort of like went back in again. And I felt a sensation then, and then I felt nothing, like I was just there and that was it. And this other being started walking up toward the car. I was sitting straight, looking straight. I couldn't even move my head. And he walked up to the car, and the window was about three-quarters of the way rolled down, and he had an object in his hand, a silver object that looked like a big pencil with a round ball on the end of it. And he pressed this against the side of my neck, which I felt some pain from, and said, ouch. Then he stepped back, and I sort of sat there, and he opened up the car door and just went like this, 
and I saw raised up out of the patrol car, and I was looking at him, and he was looking at me, and he said, are you the watchman of this town? And my response was, yes, sir. He said, come with me, watchman. And we started moving toward the spacecraft, and it felt like I was walking on air. We got up to the hatch to where you went inside of the spacecraft, and we just sort of like floated up into the first level. And he says to me, watchman, come with me, and we were in a circular room. And there were a lot of cylinders about four and a half feet high and about two feet wide that circled the whole room. And it had sort of like a cable running through it, two cables running through these. They looked like tall batteries to me. And then in the center of this room was a huge cocoon or, you know, like this shaped object was spinning and it was giving off colors like the rainbow and was about 20 feet long. And it seemed like these cables were coming up and connecting to these two block things that came down on each end of it. And we walked a complete circle in there. And I said, uh, what is this? And he said, this is how our craft operates. And he said it operates on electrical reversible magnetism. And then I looked at him, and he said, come with me, watchman. And we walked back over to where I came up in with him, and this glass sheet came down. And we stepped onto this, which I felt, and we moved up into the second level of the craft. And lo and behold, I've never seen anything like it before in my life, with so many different types of instrument panels and computer-type things that... You just wouldn't believe it. This cone thing was right in the center of the floor. You could see half of it from on top and half of it from the bottom, but it gave off a red glow that, that sort of, not flashed, but kind of died down and then came back up again. And he says, Watchman, come with me. And we walked over to a screen that was up on the side, I say, wall. Uh, and it was sort of like a TV screen, and he pressed some buttons, and I guess flipped some switches. I wasn't paying too much attention to him. I was looking at the screen, and some stars in the sky appeared on there. And he put his finger up like this, and he said, uh, this is where we're from, watchman. And then he put his hand back down. He didn't say where, and he didn't say the name. He just pointed. And now back to UFO, fact or fiction. And now Herbert Shermer picks up where he left off a moment ago when he was telling us about being briefed by the commander of a flying saucer outside Ashland, Nebraska in December 1967. The purpose that we're here is to get electricity. And there was another being standing a little distance away, and the man turned to him, and they both looked at each other, 
And he started depressing buttons. And he says, watch, watchman. And there was this antenna on the outside of the spacecraft which angled toward a power unit. And this bolt went out, a color I've never seen before in my life, and I don't even think I could describe it, went out and came back. And this stayed like this for about three minutes, and then it went off. And he turned and looked at me, and I felt as I was getting a, a, a very, very, uh, an awful lot of roll of input of words that I couldn't understand. And he reached up and he, he, he touched me on the shoulder, and he felt real when he touched me. And I think at that time I did touch him, and he felt real to me. And he says, Watchman, come with me. We walked back over to the exit, I'll say, where we came up, and the glass sheet came down again, and we went up into the third part of the craft, which was the observation deck, he said. As we stepped off, he said, Watchman, come with me. And we walked over, and we were standing there looking out of a big plate glass window type thing. And there were, a, there was a control panel right in front of it, and there were two chairs that looked like dentist chairs. You know, I've ridden a dentist, dentist chair, but really a superstructure of a chair, better, better than a dentist chair. Uh, and he, we looked out the uh, window, and I could see this one being walking back and forth by where my patrol car was. And I think I said, wow. And he put his, he didn't, no, he didn't. He, he turned to me and he said something I, I, I don't understand. And he said some more things that I, I, I didn't understand or, or couldn't make out. And I still don't. And then he pointed his hand toward the plate glass window, as I say, refer to, to the stars out there. And he says to me, Watchman, one day you yourself will see the universe as I have. And he reached up and he touched me on the shoulder, like this, you know, like grabbing you on the shoulder, like a man does, uh, to steer you away. And he says, come with me, Watchman. And... Then he stopped, and he said, Watchman, and I turned around like this to look at him, and I felt I was, like I was getting more input of something that I couldn't understand. Then he says, Watchman, come with me. We walked over, and we went down all the way out of the craft. As we got outside, this other being started walking back toward the spacecraft and boarded it as we were walking toward my patrol car. And we stopped right by the patrol car, and I turned to look at him, and he was looking at me. And then again it felt like I was receiving an input of words of some kind that I couldn't understand. 
And he turned... No, he sort of lifted his hand, and then he turned and walked back to the spacecraft, floated up inside. This catwalk thing started spinning. The lights started flashing off and on. This red orangish glow came out from beneath it. It started lifting up in the air, and I guess it got about 100 feet high and just shot straight out of sight. Let me tell you, I was scared. I started feeling me again. When I was aboard the spacecraft, I had hardly no feeling at all. My body was tingling. I was perspiring. I was hot. I felt nauseated. I got back into the patrol car. I turned it around, and I headed back for the police station. On the way to the police station, at a high rate of speed, <laughs> I tried to make communication with Wahoo Sheriff's Office, and it appeared the radio was dead. I got to the station, I jumped out of the car in a fast walk, walked into the police station, and I noticed that the wall clock in the police station said one minute after 3 a.m. Well, I went directly to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom but to drink water because I was hot. And I walked back into the main room of the police station. We had a real small police station. It was about 20 by 20. And uh, I sat there at the table, and I lit a cigarette, and I said, Wow, what the hell happened? Something happened to me. Did I really see a flying saucer? Did this really happen to me? I looked at my report log, and I remembered through all the training and everything I went through that regardless of the nature or what it was, put it in your report book because you just might need it. So I looked at my report book, and I got my pen out, and I wrote, at 2.30 a.m. December 3rd, 1967, I saw a UFO at the at junction 6 and 63, believe it or not. Now, Herb Shermer continues his fantastic story about being taken aboard a flying saucer on December 3rd, 1967. About 6.30 that morning, a fellow officer came in, and I explained to him what happened to me. And uh, the fellow officer says, uh, I believe you heard. One time I was on my way to Wahoo, Nebraska, and I was driving down the road. I looked over. Lo and behold, there were two UFOs sitting in a field, and these little green men were out there walking around it, waving at me. I said, sure, Paul. And... Uh, he says, I don't think you should tell anybody, Herb, because I don't think anybody's going to believe you. Matter of fact, you're going to lose your job if you tell the people. But I said, Paul, it's the truth. He said, well, you know, he said a lot of people won't even accept the truth. I said, well, I'll wait for the chief. He says, no, I'll go on home. So I went home, and I was, you know, I really felt like everything was drained completely out of my body, and I laid down on the couch. And as I laid there, I started getting a buzzing feeling in my head. And it felt like I was being, I had pressure on my body. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't, you know, how 
You try to open up your mouth, you can't say help. <laughs> I was trying to say help, <laughs> you know. And then I went off to sleep, and the phone rang, and it was the chief. And the chief says, get your butt down to the station right now. What is this? You mean you've seen a UFO? I said, I don't feel good. I'm sick, and I'm not coming down to the police station. He said, I'll be right over. So the next thing, TV came in, press came in, you know, newspapers, radio stations, and telephone calls started coming in. Two days later, the ridicule started coming in. Believe me. And I had a man run three blocks, huffing and puffing. He owned the Goodyear tire shop there in Ashton, Nebraska, and he let me, <laughs> Herb, if you ever see another flying saucer and it lands, you tell him I want to sell him a set of tires. <laughs> phone ring and this is the planet Mars, you know. I mean, really ridiculous stuff. I think, though, being here in Florida, one of the, the neatest walkings I got was right out here in the lobby. The gentleman out there selling books. And I walked up, and he says, Herb Sherman? I said, yes. My name is so-and-so, and I was taken aboard a police cruiser. <laughs> I thought that was neat. Um, the United States Air Force Conning Committee, Blue Book Project, or however you want to say it, investigating team, team came down to Ashland, Nebraska to investigate me. Uh, a gentleman by the name of John Aarons, who is a friend of mine, and a gentleman by the name of Roy Craig, who is a physicist. Uh, John Aarons. He'd probably hit me, but he was a shrink. Uh, a psychiatrist. <clears throat> Him and I had long discussions, and he told me to tell my story over and over and over and over, and I told it over and over and over and over. And then they found a 25-minute time lapse in my log. And John says, Herb, uh, what happened to you between... 2.30 a.m., December 3rd, 1967, and 3 a.m., or a little before 3 a.m. And I looked at him, and I couldn't say anything because I didn't remember. So he says, you got to come to Boulder. I said, okay. So they took me up to Boulder, and I met a UFO team there of a lot of people who run a lot of tests on me and a hypnotist by the name of Dr. Leo Sprinkler administered time regression hypnosis on me which found out a small detail that I had been aboard the uh, spacecraft and that I had actually communicated with them. They played the tape back to me and it shocked me. I didn't know what to think. I said, are you, is that really my voice on that tape? You bet it is, boy. I says, my God, what do I do now? So I, while I was up in Boulder, the city got real cute, you know, the city fathers and the people in the city. Uh, the day I left, they, uh, matter of fact, the night I left, uh, 
they went down to our beautiful cemetery there in Ashton, Nebraska, and took this dummy and hung it by the neck in a tree and put a big star on it, shot holes through it and painted the holes with red like blood and put herb across the star with a cowboy head on it. And they really made it look big because they went down to the mortuary and they got the amulets out of Code 3 runs, sirens, red lights, the whole works. Went over there and they very carefully took it down and put it on a stretcher and covered it up and took it back to the morgue. I, uh, they thought they scared me, but they didn't. You see, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to scare me, but they didn't scare me because I thought it was kind of funny and I laughed about it when I read it in the paper and seen all the pictures and everything. But while I was in Boulder, they blew my car up with dynamite. And that really made me mad. I just got through paying for it. And I was furious. You know, I could have done like... Uh, George C. Scott did in that movie Rage. You know, that's how mad I was. Herb Shermer's encounter with a flying saucer and its crew disturbed many people, including his wife, who said he was crazy and left. But through the whole crisis, I had one very good friend in Ashton, Nebraska. His name was Leroy Dimmitt, very close friend. And he helped me a lot in Ashland. He was one of our relief officers in the police department. And I, I'm, I, really, I was really proud to have him as a friend as way he stuck by.